Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and for the Miami Film Festival happening this month. On this episode, I talk to filmmaker Marina Zenovich. Her new film is Water and Power, a California heist that explores how big agriculture made millions by gaining private control of water. This story hits close to home for Marina because she grew up in California. Her late father, George Zenovich, was a state politician. Our interview took place in January, the day after the film's world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival. Watching Water and Power, you can't help but think of Roman Polanski's Chinatown. Gonna be a lot of irate citizens when they find out that they're paying for water that they're not gonna get. Oh, that's all taken care of. See, Mr. Gibbs, either you bring the water to L.A. or you bring L.A. to the water. How are you gonna do that? By incorporating the valley into the city. Simple as that. How much are you worth? I've no idea. How much do you want? No, I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. Of course Marina would be drawn to a topic made famous by Polanski. She spent over a decade profiling that director in two documentaries. In the first half of our interview, we discuss those films before we turn to California's water. The two topics are intertwined. Here's the opening of her film, Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired, where the director is being interviewed by a British journalist. Granted that it's too easy and a cliche to connect your, your work with your life in such a direct manner. Let me take the example of Chinatown. Chinatown is really a movie about justice not winning. Is that what you would come to believe by that stage? No, not at all. But if you want your film to serve any purpose, if you want to show injustice or, or corruption of Los Angeles in that period, you have to show that injustice somehow won and uh, uh, leave them uh, with a feeling of uh, um, frustration. Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired, delves deep into the director's 1977 arrest for the sexual assault of a 13-year-old. The case dragged on for months in the court of the controversial Judge Rittenband. The film interviews players on all sides, including prosecutors, defense lawyers, and the victim, Samantha Geimer. The film gives a fresh understanding for why Polanski grew fearful of Judge Rittenband and chose to flee from the United States in 1978 before the case was settled. Marina's film stirred up fresh attention that culminated in 2009 when the Swiss police arrested Polanski again for the unfinished case with the threat of extradition to the United States. He was held in jail then under house arrest for several months before the Swiss finally let him go. Marina covered that saga in a follow-up film called Roman Polanski, Odd Man Out that I showed at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2012. I asked how she came to focus on Polanski in the first place. I had made a film about Bernard Tapie, this Frenchman, who, who was such an amazing character. I never thought I'd find anyone more interesting than him. Bernard Tapie is a French businessman and media personality. In Marina's 2001 film, 
Who is Bernard Tapie? She gives this description. My only French friend, Anne Laure, said everyone in France knew who he was. He had the charm and good looks of Warren Beatty, the bravado of Donald Trump, the charisma of Bill Clinton, and he fell from grace like O.J. Simpson. After that film, for it took me like a year and a half. I was looking at various subjects. It's very hard to find good subject matters you can sink your teeth into. So I, I happened to be in Los Angeles when there was an article in the LA Times Sunday calendar talking about whether Roman Polanski could come, if he got nominated for The Pianist, would he be able to come back? I started sniffing around, met with various people, and then made one phone call to an old friend, Rich Radden, who used to run the LA Film Festival, and it was an odd coincidence that Rich knew the DA from the case <laughs> who was the bishop at his church, because I, I'm sure you remember the DA is Mormon, and Rich is Mormon. And then he knew uh, Roman Polanski's godson as well. So in that one phone call, I had not access, but I had a, a, a door open into two separate worlds, and that was really a sign to me that, oh, maybe I should follow this. And how much contact did you have with Polanski? I had reached out to him. I had faxed him. I got his fax number from someone, which was such a coup back then. You know, oh, my God, maybe I could get to him. He never responded. But once I was in touch with his office several years later, his secretary told me that he received the fax and that he tried to fax me back. And they had a letter where he said, I do not want you to make a film about me, but I never received the fax. Cause it was, you know, I had one of those phones that, I don't even know if I had a fax on my phone. It was just like, he was probably sending it to my, you know, landline. Right. Um, do you think that would have made any difference if you'd received that letter? I wondered when I heard that. I don't like to cause problems, but somehow I always do. I swear to God, it's not intentional. Um, I just kind of have a nose for stumbling into things that there's something there and I'm trying to get to the bottom of it. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I feel like if I got that letter, I don't know what I would have done. So that film, Roman Polanski, Want and Desired, certainly transformed the way I understood that case. And I think transformed the way many people understood that case. What were the toughest interviews for you to get in that film that you did get? His lawyer was very, very difficult. It was really the first time I used a family connection to try to get to someone. And uh, I used a friend of my dad's who was a lawyer in Los Angeles, and he called me back and said, boy, he really does not want to talk to you. And I thought I could, you know, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I kept trying and trying. And he finally one day called me. And I think he saw that I wasn't kind of letting go. Here's Polanski's lawyer, Douglas Dalton, in the film. People have the right to their own opinions about what happened, but they don't have the right to their own facts. The fact of Polanski leaving the country and so forth seems to have eclipsed the really important part of this case about what actually happened to the system of justice. I remain astounded after all these years. This case will never leave me. But he was a very difficult um, interview to get. The DA, even though I had the connection, 
We met at Noma, this great Japanese restaurant in Santa Monica. We must have met like five times over a course of a year and a half. And I can still remember every time I drive by there, I think of that first meeting with him because I I didn't know the details of the case. I'm not a lawyer, although I should have gone to law school after doing all these legal films. But I can remember. Yeah, kind of wise a law school. Exactly. But I could, not good enough for the parents, right? (laughs) (laughs) Don't have the degree, but, you know. But I remember sitting with him and furiously scribbling these notes, trying to, you know, just wrap my head around. He had never spoken to anyone. And I mean, it was really, it was just meant to be. The only reason he sat down with me is because we had the mutual friend and Rich Radden, and he, I, I mean, you know, documentaries, it's all about trust. Hmm. It's all about someone feeling that they can trust you and telling their story. In the film, a local reporter describes the reputation of D.A. Roger Gunson. The rumor in in the district attorney's office was that they picked Gunson to handle the case because he was a Mormon and because he was the only member of the D.A.'s office who hadn't had sex with an underage girl. And here's the straight-laced Gunson. I heard uh, some jokes about why they gave it to me, but uh, I can't imagine those are accurate. There were a lot of prosecutors who had an interest in high-publicity cases. Although I had had one very high-publicity case, I was uh, not one that looked for them. Well, the other big person who trusted you in that case was the the woman at the center of the story. Samantha Geimer. Yeah, I met with her lawyer. My, You know, I made two films. So to me, the first film, I, I got Samantha in the film. It was very much what her lawyer wanted, which was the two of them, more of a two-shot in a legal room with le- law books. So it wasn't ideal. I mean, I always had imagined the film as her being in exile in Hawaii and him being in exile in France. So it was kind of like I wanted to journey to those two places. And um, I was able to do that with her in the second film, Roman Polanski, Odd Man Out, um, and interview her mother. So Samantha, I think as well, wanted to tell her story. I I think the film empowered her. She went on to write a book about it. Um, getting getting her to talk was was a big deal, and then getting her mother to talk in the second film was you know huge. In the second film, Roman Polanski, Odd Man Out, Samantha Geimer discusses her feelings about Polanski. I don't want to hold on to being angry with him for the rest of my life. I didn't want to do it when I was 13 or when I was 15, and I don't want to do it now. That's self-destructive. So I forgave him to be a healthier person for myself, not for him. I mean, I'm sure he appreciates that I've forgiven him, um, but I didn't do it to make him feel better. I did it because that's how you heal and go through life. And frankly, I have been victimized far worse by a lot more people So he's kind of at the bottom of my list of, you know, people I feel harmed by at this moment. After the first film, you thought you were done with Polanski. You'd spent several years on it, but 
because of the first film's existence and what it stirred up, it kind of reopened that case. Can you describe how it reopened that case? Sure, sure. So we were, we premiered, we had an amazing year. We premiered at Sundance in 2008, and then we played Cannes. We were on HBO. It was all just, you know, kind of gliding along. I decided to make a short film because there started to be some noise about, oh, is this film going to reopen the case? Mm. So I decided to start filming if there were any court hearings and just see where it took me. But it was definitely going to be a short film. Um, I talked to Polanski at that point. He was going to be interviewed. And it was just going to be a short. Then... September, the Emmys came around. We won two Emmys. I have to tell you how it goes because it's all so positive, right? Right. And like an amazing moment in my career. And two weeks after we won the Emmys, I got a call from... It's like from, the record needle the scratches suddenly. Exactly. I got a call from Polanski's lawyer who I'd become his lawyer's son. And I'd become very fond of... Um, Doug Dalton, the lawyer. And so when I saw that his son was calling me on a Saturday, I thought, oh, my God, something's happened to him, Mm. to the lawyer. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I I said, what's wrong? And he said, I just want you to know that Roman was just arrested in Switzerland. And I was like, what? And in that moment, oh, my God, what what a crazy kind of chapter of my life began in that moment, Mm. you know? Um, it was getting ready for the onslaught of press. It was suddenly like, okay, Roman is in jail. This was in September. We were interviewing him in November because he was editing. We were initially going to inter- interview him in September, but then he was editing Ghostwriter. So we pushed it to November. It was just kind of like insanity. Mm. Um, and suddenly it became something bigger, of which I was a part. Roman Plansky, odd man out documents the case coming back into court 30 years later. Here's Polanski's defense lawyer, Chad Hummel. We now know, Your Honor, based on a film that was released in 2008, that Roman Polanski's sentence in this case to a crime to which he pleaded guilty, a sentence which he fully served, resulted from illegal ex parte communications between a prosecutor and the trial judge. Marina had gone from being an observer in the case to a participant. The L.A. Superior Court basically was trying to shut this film down. And I never really understood why so many people at the L.A. Superior Court and the DA's office were so invested in never doing anything with this case because there were things that were handled improperly. So I, being kind of relatively naive, I never really understood why they wouldn't just say, these were mistakes made in the past, despite what he did. Hmm. These were mistakes, and clearly the judge was doing, you know, the judge and the uh, the David Wells, the assistant district attorney, were doing some, you know, funny business. Um, as what as had Roman Polanski and why he was in this mess, but um, my my late father, who was a politician and a judge, you know, really kind of made me understand that institutions never really want to claim that they did anything wrong, mm. and that was a big lesson. 
It's like, why couldn't someone just stand up and say, you know, there were mistakes made. He went through this. He went through the system. He served his time that was given to him. They, they, they pulled him out. It was a 90-day diagnostic. They pulled him out 43 day, after 43 days. He thought it was over because he pled, and he thought it was over, but then the judge changed the goalposts. It was a fascinating period of my life. And um, I actually had a dream about him where he was holding a sign that, that said, you are a guest in my life. Isn't that fantastic? Wow. It was, it was such a strange relationship because I, I stumbled on this story. I made this film. I, there ended up being information that wasn't out there. Like it was if you went down to the LA Times and, you know, went in the microfiche yeah. library. So I, I, I was this person who happened to make this film that his team thought would reopen the case and end the case, basically. That was never my intention. That was just what came organically out of the film. But instead, because it got so much international attention, someone who worked at, you know, Interpol was reading the newspaper and saw that the Zurich Film Festival was giving Roman Polanski a Lifetime Achievement Award and thought, Roman Polanski, isn't that someone who's on the red list? So it was a fascinating process to go through. Um, and our relationship is he's... He's always been very he's a, a, a he's always been very cordial to me, but you know, it goes without saying that he himself has said to me, "You started this with you know after his what he did." But um, so I guess that's the role of the documentary filmmaker, right? Was your father alive during that time to give you he guidance? Was, yeah. yeah, no, it was it was it was great that he was. My whole family was here at Sundance, and it was great. My dad was the one who kind of knew that this was going to like stir a lot of things up. And I didn't even really know. I just, seriously, I kind of stumbled into this story. I was very hungry to find something that I could really sink my teeth into. You know, it's really, it's after these, you have a success and then you have a dry period where things aren't working. And it's usually after the dry period where you're so hungry hmm. that you end up really nailing it because it takes so many different things to not only, you know, get the money, get the access, get the people you want to work with you to make the good film. It, it, it's so hard that, you know, it's just a series of, um, well, you, you know, because you talk to people all the time. But um, I just kind of stumbled into the Polanski story and it ended up being like a defining moment in my career. I spent 10 years on it. You know, I'm kind of intertwined with him and 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 then... You know, Alex Gibney pitches me Chinatown the documentary, and instead of running, I say, what? <laughs> that sounds very interesting. We'll be back with more from Marina Zenovich, discussing her new film, Water and Power, A California Heist, after the break. If you love documentary film, you should know about the True False Film Fest, taking place in Columbia, Missouri, the first weekend of March. The festival has earned a deep respect for its exploration of the gray area between fiction and nonfiction. Now, there's a true-false podcast you can hear on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes will be released every Thursday. For more information, visit truefalse.org. 
In Water and Power, a California heist, Marina investigates the secret history of deal-making between big agriculture and politicians. The film was made with Alex Gibney's company Jigsaw Productions for National Geographic. Marina interviews a wide array of people affected by California's water crisis. A prominent figure is the journalist Mark Arax. For the last four years, everybody has been very desperate in California for water. And the image that has been projected to the world is that California has become dry, that the land is turned to sand, that we're parched. But this is not true because for the past four years, in the midst of this drought, agriculture has recorded record crops each and every year. To the record profits for California farmers. You mentioned your father before, and I hadn't really understood before I was reading the press notes for Water and Power that your dad was a politician, Democratic uh, politician in California. Can you tell me more about his career? Um, my dad was, you know, high school president, class president at his college, went on to be an assemblyman and a senator and a judge, and was really um, a a big Democrat in California, Um, involved in a lot of things that shaped the state, not super involved in water, but his district was the Central Valley. So my dad passed away um, a few years ago, and part of the reason why I was interested in this project was, in a way, it was like going home. Mm. Spending a lot of time kind of in the Central Valley felt like it was a way to get closer to my dad and kind of what he had, I don't know, experienced through um, politics and, and the world. What was your relationship with him growing up? Oh, I, you know, all you have to do is see who is Bernard Tapie. And <laughs> my dad was like a, a, a gorgeous, sophisticated uh, gentleman who I admired greatly and used to try to act like him. I used to go to the Capitol and work there every other summer. And I really took in kind of what was happening. And I, and I, could have gone into politics, but I was always more interested in entertainment. Did he have any opinions about what he wanted you to do? Um, I think both my parents thought I should have been a lawyer, but my dad started out, he, he put himself through law school playing the stand-up bass. Wow. So my dad was a musician and my mother was an actress in the former Yugoslavia who also went to law school. So we have that kind of um, music and acting in our, in our blood. So it's not a total rebellion to go into entertainment. No, but I mean, you know, they got their law degrees, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was it was great for my parents to be here um, to, you know, you know, you want your parents to see you, what, succeed, get married, have a child. Uh, you know, my dad married me because he was a judge. So it was it's it's all good. That's great. And this is the personal hour with Marina Zinovich. Anyway, I'm sorry he wasn't here. This would be a very, very interesting moment Hmm. for him. So when Alex Gibney approaches you, says, I've got this project about water in California, you were immediately interested. Oh, totally. I mean, Alex is is my go-to guy for 
questions, problems. You know, he's amazing in how helpful he can be. And I think. Well, give me an example of that. How, how does he how has he served that way in the past? Just anytime I have anything really complicated or, you know, dealing with a difficult person in a film who what rights they want or, you know, how do I go about doing it, It's just um it's frontline stuff that only you know what people want to do here they want to they want to share like horror stories and it's it's just because doing this stuff is really hard and you need a support system and you need people who have been through it to help you get through it and it's it's funny you just i'm always looking to learn so i'm i'm never afraid to ask for advice or you just want to learn. Well, I also think it's true, like after you've gone through something especially difficult, whether it's a creative challenge or a personality challenge or a business challenge, like you want to share it so that someone else doesn't have to experience exactly. it. Exactly. I mean, I can remember Alex and his wife coming up to my hotel room in Toronto when Odd Man, Odd Man, Man was- Out was there, but I was doing my uh, contract for the Richard Pryor film and Alex like giving me advice. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's... It's that kind of stuff that um, he's amazing at. So so he is my go-to person. We'd never worked together. And I was I was thrilled when he wanted me to do it. And he knows, he knows my struggles. He knows that I've been trying to make a film about Jerry Brown. He knows what I he knows what I'm interested in. He knew who my dad was. So and he he came up with the title Wanted and Desired. So he was there at an early screening of that, you know, when he was trying to get in the elevator to leave. And I'm like, please tell me this is going to work out. You know, I mean, it's it's these films are hard, um, but it's a it's a, a joy to be able to do this for a living. So when you started out on Water and Power, what were the resources you had and what were the things that you had to figure out to tell the story? Well, I had a lot of resources because, you know, Jigsaw is a company that has, uh, they're fully staffed and, you know, I'm like a one-man band um, with regards to research and stuff. And I love that stuff. I should have been a private investigator of just finding things and people and I pride myself on that. But Lynn Kirby had, uh, was working with Alex and came up with the idea. And so they had done a lot of research already. So when they came to me, they already had investigated various various things. They had identified Mark Arax as someone who would be someone to follow, you know, and it turns out that I'm from Fresno. Mark and I went to the same high school. I know his little brother. I knew his work. It was just, it was the perfect fit. So I had all this research already, which is great, but I had to then, it had to go through me because it's a, it's very dense. Right. And it's a lot of information. And I have to tell you, when my sister saw the film, she was like, oh my God, you have to make a part two. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but watching it last night, thank you, Ninon, I have to say, I, the thought crossed my mind. Because it's so dense. And it's like once Maybe you Maybe once you've done the spade work, uh, you want to capitalize on that. Yeah. Because once you kind of start to understand, and I watched, I watch Water and Power California Heist, and I still just can't believe it. It's such a sobering experience, even having made the movie. And I feel like I'm, I'm constantly trying to reinforce my knowledge of, of the facts. 
Um, not the what's the the line this week? The the alternative, alternative facts. facts, not the alternative facts, but the facts. Um, because there is so much. In the film, journalist Mark Arax explains the involvement of Stuart Resnick, owner of Franklin Mint Collectibles. Resnick used his Franklin Mint profits to buy land in California. And he started purchasing these large swaths of land in West Kern in the late 1970s. And remember, Western Kern has no groundwater, so it should have never been developed as farmland. But Resnick's a gambler. And he had a vision to move California's water from where it was to where it wasn't. Resnick wasn't in the room at the Monterey Agreements. But Resnick's main waterman, Bill Fillimore, had a major, major role. And the water bank was identified, and smartly so, by the Resnick people as something that they wanted. This was one of the prizes of that negotiation. You grew up around politicians, so it can't be that surprising to you, uh, the world of deal making. But I wonder, as you got into the research for Water and Power, were there things that did surprise you? A lot of things surprised me. I mean, you know, what was interesting about the deal making and the Monterey amendments was basically it really depended on who you talked to, what kind of story you got. A lot of this stuff is done behind closed doors. And um, I can't remember who in the film, it's not in the film, but he told me that, you know, this, we never could have had these meetings in front of the public. Mm. And I understand that, but at, because it's like, could they have gotten it done? But at the same time, they shouldn't have gotten it done. You know, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm forever kind of fascinated by power and negotiation and deal-making and ego and greed Hmm. and who is doing what for whom. (laughs) You know, I think in my dad's day, I may be wrong, but it seemed a little more innocent. Hmm. It wasn't so much about the money, you know? I mean, my dad was a Democrat, but he and this is in California, in the, in the legislature, they would negotiate and, you know, it, it's all deal making. It's, you know, look, Tom, I'm going to give you that vote on your Toronto bill, <laughs> but I need you to give me, I'll give you that if you give me this on my dock bill. You know, it's like, right. it's, it's the way it's done. It's, it's, it's the art of compromises. Exactly. The art of compromise. And, um, It just seems like it's all gotten uglier. More compromised. Exactly. You say Um, it better than me. And a lot of it has to do with greed. And I I love the moment in the film when when Tony Rossman says, you know, someone once advised me, never underestimate the power of greed. And if you're not a greedy person, you don't really think like that. I mean, how much is enough? That goes back to Chinatown. Exactly. My God. How much? You know, so I, 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 I'm so much is happening in the world so related to this. Key figures in this film, although they weren't interviewed in the film, are Stuart and Linda Resnick, uh, who own um, a lot of land uh, in California and are, are growers. Can you, you know, for people who haven't seen the film, describe who Stuart and Linda Resnick are and how they figure in the story? So the Resnicks are huge farmers. I think they're the biggest farmers in in the state of California and maybe the United States. 
Um, they own a lot of land in the Central Valley, um, and they they have a lot of power. Um, and our film talks about something called the Monterey Amendments, which a lot of people don't know about, which is a series of meetings that took place in the 90s where um, a water bank in Kern County, which was owned by the state, was basically given to a consortium of companies, which a vast percentage of it, a huge percentage, was was owned by the Resnicks. So, and then they went on to make a lot of money and sell a lot of, of wonderful almonds and pistachios. But it's not just the Resnicks. I mean, this is a story about big ag versus the little guy and, and kind of... I mean, the, the Resnicks come off as notable characters uh, in your film. Would you say they're kind of representing many different uh, versions of big agriculture or, or do they stand out in the story? Well, they you can't tell the story without them. I mean, they're intertwined with the Monterey Amendments. And um, I think Stuart Resnick has been quoted as saying, you know, we bought the water bank, so it's ours. We own it. Um so, but there's been a lawsuit going on for many years. Um, a lot of people feel that it wasn't right, that it was, you know, whether they bought it or not, that it was given to a, a, a private company. You've probably enjoyed the Resnick's products. Their brand, Wonderful, produces almonds, pistachios, and the pomegranate drink. Linda Resnick was memorable to me from the Morgan Spurlock documentary, Palm Wonderful Presents the greatest movie ever sold. Spurlock was examining how brands work their way into entertainment. With a very meta concept, he takes meetings with marketing executives, asking them to fund his documentary in exchange for product placement. In this scene, he meets with Linda Resnick, trying to entice Palm Wonderful to come in at the highest level of title sponsorship. The brands that we want to go after are brands that I feel like really reflect what I think the movie stands for, what I stand for, um, you know, doing something different, doing something innovative. We think that you represent Palm in a way, and Palm represents you, that we were compatible together. Yeah. So that's why I'm attracted to it. The other thing is, you know, full transparency is very important to us. And I think it's important that people know how much we spent to get in this movie, mm -hmm. and that we actually paid for it, because why not? Do you have any concerns? Of course. <laughs> I wouldn't be a Jewish mother if I didn't have concerns. But part of being out there and um, being successful is taking chances. That was the first I'd ever heard of Linda Resnick. Now in Water and Power, I see a whole other side to her business. Linda is a, is a genius marketer. You know, I'm not a marketing person, so I don't know. I don't have those skills, I don't think. Uh, so it's it's fascinating to see what she's been able to do with marketing. It's all marketing. I mean, look, you know, <sighs> wonderful products are everywhere. So when you market, that's what you do. What do you do? You market. Why are you marketing? To sell your products for what? To make money. So, And that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's not illegal. It's that's her business. Well, just in your film, we see another side to what's being marketed and what the costs of it are. Right. Not the... Financial costs, although there are some financial costs, but also what environmental costs there are. Well, Morgan's film, I think, was a little more fun. 
anyway, this yeah. definitely isn't fun. <laughs> well, this they're about is... two different things. So <laughs> right, it's not but to I mean, this is corollaries. a very serious, serious topic that, um, you know, I almost have to get in the mood to talk about because it's so serious that mm. you almost don't, it's not surface. This is, we're talking about our water <laughs> yeah. that is, you know, not going to be here forever. And you can say those things, but it's like, you know, that's why we brought Carol Rowland here who, who has no water. I mean, it, it's, this is happening. It's happening in California. It's happening around the world. And so it's, it's um, you know, my husband said, you know, this was really a public service film hmm. because it's like people need to know what is going on. So, so uh, how did it change the way you look at water? Well, it opened my eyes tremendously. I mean, I try to conserve more, you know, I just do little things. Let's shut the water when I'm brushing my teeth, try to take less showers. I mean, you know, but it, it's one of those things that you don't really think about until it affects you, hmm. right? So that's why we're trying to tell people ahead of time before it affects you, because Imagine really having to live like Michael Lunsford, the guy at the beginning of the movie, where he's like collecting rainwater to make coffee, and he ended up getting a, a tank. But it's it's really frightening, and it's really made me think about my footprint. But it can't just be about me. It has to be everyone. I read an interview with you, I think sometime around Odd Man Out, where you were saying you want to get away from doing another legal documentary. You want to make a romantic comedy. And whatever that wish was from a few years ago doesn't seem like you really followed through on it. Well, you know, it's funny. I think my tendency, um, I started out as an actor. I'm very interested in human beings and behavior and why people do things. I like to laugh. <laughs> I have a young child. I... I don't like everything to be so serious, but what's interesting is that it's a very serious time and we need to kind of take advantage of that moment. I want to thank Marina Zenovich for speaking with me. Her film, Water and Power, A California Heist, will open theatrically in New York and Los Angeles on March 3rd and will air globally on National Geographic on March 14th. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team. Series producer, Michael Scotty Jr. Sound mixer, Kyle Murphy. Web designer, Cross Strategy. Marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo. Social media master, Jordan Smith. And executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at Powers. If you're in New York, check out our screening series, Stranger Than Fiction, on Tuesday nights at IFC Center. And if you're in Miami, look for me at the Miami Film Festival, happening March 3rd through 12th. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.